0: This is going to be a little different of an episode, and I'm pretty sure we all know why. Here at A Murderous Affair, we are united to condemn the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, and many, many others at the hands of the police. We think this is a continuation of the systemic racism pervasive in our country since its inception, and we are committed to standing against racism in all its forms. We believe that to be silent is to be complicit, that Black Lives Matter, and that we have a responsibility to use our platforms to speak out against this injustice whenever and wherever we are witness to it. In creating digital media, we have built audiences that return week after week to hear our voices, and we will use our voices to speak against anti-Blackness and police brutality, and we encourage our audiences to be engaged, educated, and to take action. If you're looking to donate or just generally learn more, about where you can support the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, There's a couple of really great resources. The Know Your Rights Camp was founded by Colin Kaepernick which holds education seminars across the country for black and brown youth. There is Communities Against Police Brutality, which is a Twin Cities-based organization that confronts police brutality by providing those in need with services like crisis hotlines, legal, medical, and psychological referrals, um, along with many other resources. There is Reclaim the Block, which works with communities and city council members in Minneapolis to redistribute money from police departments to other parts of the city's budget that really focus on promoting community health and safety so if you guys are looking for more places to donate more places to learn um, about where you can help beyond just like marching and protests and that sort of thing you can definitely check up on your voter status check up on what upcoming legislation laws help prevent police brutality and other violence against people of color on this podcast I usually talk about women who are as the tagline says known for mayhem and murder and when I started this podcast I began it because I was tired of not hearing about women in history especially when it came to women who seemed to be buried because of their overall lack of feminine qualities and femininity. Recently, with the civil rights protests across the United States and in other countries, I felt like I wasn't doing enough. So yes, I was retweeting things, I was liking things, I was checking voting status and seeing what was going on in my city, but with this platform, even though it's a small one, I couldn't figure out what to post, and doing nothing felt like being part of the problem. So I wanted to take the chance this week to pay my respects to another woman in history who was active in the civil rights movement, labeled as a radical and a quote-unquote race agitator, and oftentimes isn't as well-known as other activists. Her name is Ida B. Wells, and I feel like her story is one that we need right now. She was born in Holly Springs, Mississippi on July 16th, 1862. She was the firstborn of James and Elizabeth Lizzie Wells, and both of her parents had been born into slavery. James worked as a hired slave who lived in town working as a carpenter's apprentice, and Lizzie was stolen from her families and siblings and sold, and was never able to reconnect with them even after the Civil War. Ida B. Wells was the oldest of eight children, and she enrolled in what was known as Shaw College, now known as Rust College, which is a liberal arts school in Holly Springs. Her family raised her and all of her brothers and sisters to really, um appreciate the foundation of education and believe how important it is. However, Wells was actually expelled from Rust College when she started an argument with the university president. Both her parents died during the yellow fever epidemic, as well as a sibling of hers, in September of 1878. Friends and relatives originally wanted to separate the five remaining children because they thought that it was better to relocate them to various foster homes, but Wells was having none of that. She insisted on keeping them all together as a family and as a result took a job as a teacher in a black elementary school while friends and family would help take care of her siblings during the day. Her grandmother Peggy was especially helpful during this time period. Unfortunately, Peggy died from a stroke and around that time, Wells accepted an invitation from her aunt to move to Memphis with her two youngest sisters in 1883. She began working as a teacher for the Shelby County School System and attended college during the summer breaks. She studied at Fisk University and Lemoyne-Owen College. It was around this time that she also began making her political opinion known. In fact, there's a quote from when she was 24 that I really enjoyed reading, which is, I will not begin at this late day by doing what my soul abhors, sugaring men, weak, deceitful creatures, with flattery to retain them as escorts or to gratify a revenge. On May 4th, 1884, she was on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad when the conductor told her to give up her seat in first class and move to the smoking car. She refused, and the conductor tried to forcibly remove her, to which Rells responded by quote-unquote fastening her teeth on the back of his hand. It eventually took two other men and the conductor to drag her out of the first-class ladies' car. She actually wrote about her experience in something called The Living Way, a weekly black church newspaper which gained some publicity in memphis she hired an attorney to sue the railroad but the railroad company paid off this attorney to drop her case but she was undeterred and hired another attorney and then proceeded to win her case against the railway company on christmas eve 1884. the local court gave her a 500 dollars reward but unfortunately the railway company appealed to the tennessee supreme court which reversed the ruling and concluded by saying, We think it is evident that the purpose of the defendant in error was to harass with a view to this suit, and that her persistence was not in good faith to obtain a comfortable seat for the short ride. And after this reversal ruling, Wells was forced to pay court costs. Wells continued to teach elementary school but also began becoming more active as a journalist and a writer. She was given an editorial position for the Evening Star in Washington, D.C., and wrote weekly articles for the Living Way newspaper under the pseudonym Iola. In 1889, she became editor and co owner with J.L. Fleming of the Free Speech and Headlight, a black owned newspaper established by Reverend Taylor Nightingale and based at the Beale Street Baptist Church in Memphis. Wells used her position. Position as a journalist to make known a lot of the criticisms that she had of the black schools of the region of Memphis and in 1891 this actually led to her dismissal from her teaching post by the Memphis Board of Education obviously this was devastating but she concentrated all her energy on writing articles for the living way and the free speech and headlight eventually what she became known for was the extreme coverage that she did on the lynchings in America she went through and was actually one of the first people to ever tally up the total amount of lynchings and interview people who were involved with them people who were affected and this all started with the death of her friend Thomas Mass. She was extremely close with Thomas Mass's family and was actually the godmother of his first child. In 1889 Thomas Mass owned a grocery store called the People's Grocery. The grocery store was really successful and competed with a white-owned grocery store nearby. On March 2nd 1892 there was a black boy named Armour Harris who was playing a game of marbles with a white boy Cornelius Hurst. They got into an argument in front of Thomas Mass's store and began to fight. Armor was reportedly winning the fight when Cornelius' father saw and started beating Armor. Two employees inside Mass's store ran out to defend Armor and break up the fight, but the entire thing soon became a racially charged mob. Somehow, this led to the white grocery store owner, Barrett, to come back the next day on March 3rd to the People's Grocery with a sheriff's deputy looking for one of the employees, William Stewart. The other employee, Calvin McDowell, said that Stewart was not present, and this made the white grocery store owner extremely upset, in addition to being frustrated that the grocery store owned by Thomas Mass was competing with his store. Angry about everything that was going on, Barrett said that, quote, blacks were thieves and hit the store worker, Calvin McDowell, with a gun. Um, McDowell ended up taking the gun away from Barrett and shot at him, but missed. He was later arrested, but eventually released which then led to march 5th 1892 where a group of six white men including the sheriff's deputy took a trip down to the people's grocery took a trip down to thomas mass's grocery store the group of white men were met by store workers defending the store with guns and the sheriff deputy as well as a civilian were injured this made hundreds of white people gathered together to immediately put down what was perceived as an armed rebellion by black men the People named Thomas Moss as being the one of the conspirators along with McDowell and Stewart, and the three men were arrested and put in jail. But around 2.30 in the morning on March 9, 1892, 75 men wearing black masks took Moss, McDowell, and Stewart from their jail cells to a rail yard about a mile away from the city and shot them. And then Moss, just before he was killed, told the mob, quote, "'Tell my people to go west. There is no justice here.'" After the lynching of her friends, Wells wrote in the free speech and headlight, there is therefore only one thing left to do, save our money and leave a town which will neither protect our lives and property nor give us a fair trial in the courts but takes us out and murders us in cold blood when accused by white persons. This is what made Wells start investigating lynchings across the United States um, using her investigative journalist techniques. She began to interview people that were involved with lynchings, including one that happened in Mississippi in 1892, where she found that the father of a young white woman had actually asked a lynch mob to kill the black man that his daughter was having a relationship with in order to, quote, save the reputation of his daughter. In May of 1892, to Wells published an editorial talking about the, quote, old threadbare lie that black men rape white women. In this article, she said, quote, if Southern men are not careful, a conclusion might be reached, which will be very damaging to the moral reputation of their women. After publishing this article, it was not met the best, and her newspaper office was actually burned to the ground because of it. On October 26, 1892, Wells began to publish her research on lynching in a pamphlet called The Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases. She She had examined tons of accounts of lynchings due to the quote alleged rape of white women and her conclusion was that southerners tended to cry rape as an excuse to hide their real reasons for lynching the truth of which was usually black economic progress, which threatened white Southerners with competition and white ideas of enforcing black second-class status in the society. Black economic progress was a contemporary issue in the South, and in many states, white people worked to suppress black progress. This was the time where a lot of Southern states, starting with the Mississippi in 1890, would pass laws or new constitutions to disenfranchise most black people through use of poll taxes, literary tests, and other devices. In her pamphlet, Wells recommended that black people use arms to defend against lynching. She actually followed this up with greater research and detail in something called the Red Record, which was a 100-page pamphlet describing lynching in the United States since the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863. It also covered black people's struggles in the South, starting since the Civil War. The red record explored alarmingly high rates of lynching in the United States, which was at its peak from 1880 to 1930. And Wells said that most people actually did not realize the growing rate of violence against black people in the South. She believed that during slavery, white people had not committed as many attacks because of the labor value of slaves. She is noted as saying that, quote, since slavery time, 10,000 black people have been killed in cold blood through lynching, without the formality of judicial trial and legal execution. One of Wells' admirers was actually Frederick Douglass, and he had written an article noting three eras of, quote, Southern barbarism, and the excuses that white people claimed in each period. She took this and explored these in detail in her red record pamphlet. And these are taken as direct quotes from Wikipedia, which cites that during slavery time, she noted that whites worked to repress and stamp out alleged race riots or suspected slave rebellions, usually killing black people in a far higher proportion than any white casualty. Once the civil war ended, white people feared black people who were a majority in many areas. White people acted to control and suppress them by violence. During the Reconstruction era, white people lynched black people as part of mob efforts to suppress black political activity and reestablish white supremacy. They feared black domination through voting and taking office. Wells urged black people in high-risk areas to move away to protect their families. She noted that white people frequently claimed that black men had, quote, to be killed to avenge their assaults upon women. She noted that white people assumed that any relationship between a white woman and a black man was a result of rape, but given power relationships, it was much more common for white men to take sexual advantage of poor black women. Wells connected lynching to sexual violence. There was a total of 14 pages of statistics related to lynching cases committed from 1892 to 1895. And she also included pages of graphic accounts detailing specific lynching. She actually took her data from articles by white correspondents, white press boroughs, and white newspapers. These publications grabbed the attention of Northern Americans who actually knew little about lynching or accepted the common explanation that the black man lynched deserved this fate. Despite her attempt to gain support among white Americans against lynching, she ultimately thought that her campaign wouldn't overturn the economic interests white people had in using lynching as an instrument to maintain southern order and discourage black economic ventures. Ultimately, she came to the conclusion that appealing to reason and compassion would not succeed in gaining criminalization of lynching instead she concluded that perhaps armed resistance was the only defense against lynching and she also continued to extend her efforts in gaining support from other powerful white nations like britain to shame and sanction the racist practices of america and this is just totally me ad-libbing like i was going to try and just make this all informational and fact but just i'm reading this and i'm not doing as much like of my own personal commentary as i was i'm keeping this very much almost like to the quote of what i've read from the articles and Very little like changes by me, but it's just like the fact that I'm reading this and we're not taught. If you just replace the word lynching with police brutality, like it's it's literally almost the same exact thing that's happening now. You know, so this this was a problem then. This is a problem now, and it's just it's it's ridiculous to me. It's just it's something that's blowing my mind that as I'm reading this from the 1890s to the 1930s, you know, this whole article could be considered if you just replace the word lynching with the words police brutality it could be almost a modern day article anyway that's my just my little insight I had to just throw in there because I'm reading this directly just just because it's astounding how little progress how much progress we think we've made and then you go back and read something like this and it's like oh yeah no just changing one word just replacing these lynching with police brutality you see it's like No, this is almost the exact same problem. Anyway, so Wells went twice to Britain, um, once in 1893 and once in 1894 in order to kind of continue her campaign against lynching. She and her supporters and community in America saw these tours as an opportunity for her to reach larger white audience with her anti-lynching campaign. Which was something that she had been unable to accomplish in america she found that in britain the audiences were already shocked by reports of lynching in america and they were extremely sympathetic to her cause in 1894 before she left for her second visit to great britain wells reached out to William Penn Nixon, who was the editor of the Daily Inner Ocean. It was a Republican newspaper in Chicago that was one of the only major white papers that persistently denounced lynching. After she told Nixon about her planned tour, he actually asked her to write for the newspaper while she was in England and she was the first African-American woman to be paid as a correspondent for a mainstream white newspaper. During the second tour, she went to England, Scotland, and Wales for around two months and addressed audiences of thousands. She used her pamphlet, Southern Horrors, in her first tour and showed shocking photographs of actual lynchings in america a result of her lecture tours in britain she got a lot of coverage in, Brit- in british and american press of course in the american press many of the articles that were published were hostile personal critiques instead of focusing on her anti-lynching position and beliefs but despite these attacks in the press she actually had gained extensive recognition and credibility as well as an international audience of white supporters for her cause. So in addition to her strong positions against racism, violence, and lynching, she was a woman suffragist, and this led to a lot of conflict with leaders of largely white suffrage organizations. One of the most notable examples was her very public disagreement with Frances Willard, who was the first president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. It was a predominantly white organization with branches in every state and a growing membership. In 1893, Wells and Willard were actually traveling to Britain separately on different lecture tours. Willard was promoting temperance as well as suffrage for women, and Wells was calling attention to lynching in the U.S. A big part of their dispute was the fact that Wells was making public statements that Willard was being silent on the issue of lynching. She actually referred to an interview that Willard had done during her tour of the American South, in which Willard had actually blamed African Americans' behavior for the defeat of temperance legislation. There's a quote from Willard saying that, quote, the colored race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt. And the grog shop is its center of power. The safety of women, of childhood, of the home is menaced in a thousand localities. And Willard and one of her main, main prominent supporters, Lady Somerset, attempted to limit press coverage of Wells' comments, but newspapers in Britain provided full details of the arguments that happened. She actually, Wells also actually dedicated a chapter of the 1895 pamphlet A Red Record to show the different positions that she and Willard had. This chapter was called Miss Willard's Attitude and condemned Willard for using rhetoric that Wells believed promoted violence and other crimes against African Americans in America. In 1895, Wells married attorney Ferdinand L. Barnett. He was a prominent attorney and a civil rights activist and journalist in Chicago. He also spoke widely against lynchings and for the civil rights of black people in America. They met in 1893 working together on a pamphlet that protested the lack of black representation at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago in 1893. Actually in 1893, with Frederick Douglass and other prominent black leaders, Wells organized a boycott of the World's Columbian Exposition for its exclusion of African-American people from the exhibits. Wells, Douglas, Irvine Garland Penn, and Ferdinand L. Barnett wrote sections of the pamphlet called the reason why the Colored American is not in the World's Columbian Exposition, which exposed the basis of Southern lynching and which detailed the progress of black people since their arrival in America. And later, Wells reported that copies of the pamphlet had been distributed to more than 20,000 people at the fair. This was also the same year that she founded the Chicago Conservador, which was the first and oldest African-American newspaper in the city. She began writing for the paper in 1893 and later acquired a partial ownership interest. After her marriage with Barnett, she assumed the role of editor. So their marriage was actually built upon having the same ideas and the same desire to take action. They were both journalists, both were established activists with shared commitment to civil rights. So not only are these two trailblazers in terms of being extremely prominent activists, but... They had a different kind of relationship than most traditional marriages at the time where women often played the more traditional domestic role. Instead, they had a close working relationship as well as a close personal relationship. So Barnett actually had two children from a previous marriage, and together the couple had four more. Charles, Herman, Ida, and Alfreda. In an autobiography she later wrote called Crusade for Justice, Wells described that she had extreme difficulties splitting her time between her family and her work. So like I mentioned before, Frederick Douglass actually was one of the civil rights leaders who praised Wells' work and would give her introductions and financial support for her investigations. When he died in 1895, Wells was about at the height of her notoriety, but there were many men and women who were against a woman taking lead in the black civil rights movement at a time where women were not seen as leaders by the wider society. Um, Wells was oftentimes seen to be too radical. So she would collaborate and would encounter the others, but they oftentimes had many disagreements. One of these examples is that there are different accounts as to why Wells's name was excluded from the original list of founders of the NAACP, because she was one of the people who helped found this organization. In his autobiography, Dusk of Dawn, W.E.B. Du Bois implies that Wells said she did not want to be included, but in her autobiography, Wells said that Du Bois deliberately excluded her from the list. Eventually, she settled in Chicago and she continued her work while becoming more focused on civil rights. In 1913, Wells and a colleague of hers who was white, named Bell Squire, organized Alpha Suffrage Club in Chicago. It was one of the most important black suffrage organizations in Chicago and was founded as a way to further voting rights for all women, as well as to teach black women how to engage in civic matters and to work to elect black people to city office. The National American Women's Suffrage Association was organizing a suffrage parade in Washington, D.C., and it was marching before the inauguration of Woodrow Wilson in 1913. Wells, together with the delegation of members from their Alpha Club, wanted to attend, and on the day of the march, the head of the Illinois delegation told Wells that the delegates at the NAWSA wanted to keep the delegation entirely white, and that all the black suffragists, including Wells, were to walk at the end of par- of the parade in a, quote, colored delegation. Instead of going to the back with the other black people, however, Wells waited with spectators as the parade was underway and then stepped into the white Chicago delegation as they passed by. During World War I, the US government had actually placed Wells under surveillance, labeling her a dangerous, quote, unquote, race agitator. She defied this threat by continuing her civil rights work during this period, with other figures like Marcus Garvey, Monroe Trotter, and Madame C.J. Walker. After almost 30 years away, Wells made her first trip back to the South in 1921 to investigate and publish a report on the Elaine race riot in Arkansas. In the 1920s, Wells remained active in the Republican party and she challenged, in order to challenge what she viewed as problems for black people in Chicago, She started a political organization called the Third Ward Women's Political Club in 1927. It's said that her feelings toward the Republican Party became more mixed during the Hoover administration because of their stance on civil rights. Um, In 1930, Wells unsuccessfully sought elective office and ran for a seat as an independent for the Illinois Senate. In 1928, Wells began writing her biography, Crusade for Justice, but it was never finished. It would be posthumously published and edited by her daughter, Alfreda Barnett Duster, in 1970 as Crusade for Justice, the autobiography of Ida B. Wells. Wells died of uremia, which is kidney failure, in Chicago on March 25, 1931 at the age of 68. She was buried in the Oakwood Cemetery in Chicago. There have been many posthumous awards nominated for her. Um, Awards have been established in her name by the National Association of Black Journalists the Medill School of Journalism and Northwestern University, the Coordinating Council for Women in History, the Investigative Fund, the University of Louisville, and the New York County's Lawyers Association, along with many others. The Ida B. Wells Memorial Foundation and the Ida B. Wells Museum have also been established to protect, preserve, and promote Wells's legacy. And in her hometown of Holly Springs, Mississippi, there is an Ida B. Wells Barnett Museum in her honor. In 1988, she was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, And in August that same year, she was also included in the Chicago Women's Hall of Fame. On May 4th, 2020, which is this year, so extremely recently, she was posthumously awarded a Pulitzer Prize special citation, quote, for her outstanding and courageous reporting on the horrific and vicious violence against African Americans during the era of lynching. I think one of my favorite Ida B. Wells quotes, and this is what a lot of people um, quote her saying, but it's just one that really sticks out, is that, quote unquote, One had better die fighting injustice then die like a dog or a rat in a trap. So that is the legacy of Ida B. Wells. I'm sure that there's been so much more that I might have missed. So if you guys are interested, please look her up as well as other black civil rights leaders and black suffrage leaders. Make sure everyone stays safe out there. I'll talk to you guys next week. Goodbye.